We're going to um, finish up our study on Noah this morning, Lord willing. You know, it would have been nice, humanly speaking, if the biblical account of Noah had simply ended with that beautiful rainbow that was placed in the sky by God as a token of his covenant promise with Noah and all his perpetual generations. But, of course, that is not where Noah's story ended. Sad to say, we have to start out our new year on sort of a bad note. Warren Wearsby said this, he said, The history of Noah and his family now moves from rainbows to shadows. So we're starting out the year by going from a rainbow to a shadow. If man alone had been the author of the scripture, then the sad verses to which we come this morning in our lesson this morning, Genesis 9, verses 18 to 29, they might have been omitted because the spots and blemishes and flaws of our great heroes, you know, man's heroes, such as Noah, tend to be concealed by man. Or at least they did up until the last 50 years or so, especially if you're running for political office, that doesn't happen to be true. However, the Bible, as we know, was authored and inspired by God himself, and therefore we are given the full truth, the whole truth about man, even men of such great faith, men listed in the Hall of Faith chapter of the Bible, chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're given the truth even about them. God demonstrates to us in this way by telling us everything about man, even great men, you know, even their flaws, that no individual, no matter how mighty his faith might have been, no individual apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is above sin. Even righteous Noah, whose faith, of course, is one of the greatest examples that we have in all of the scripture, a man who is said to have been perfect in his generations, a man who was called righteous, a man who actually walked with God. He was not without a sin nature which had to be held in check at all times. Even in a world that had been purged clean by the waters of judgment, man proved himself incapable of the perfection which he would need in order to be able to save himself. Man is incapable of saving himself. So the fall of Noah teaches us, among other things, that anyone can sin and that, in fact, all do sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that is good. For all have sinned, right, and come short of the glory of God. Even a man like Noah was not above uh, falling into temptation. And so if he was not, then none of us are. And that's exactly what the Bible does teach us, that all of us are sinners. We've all inherited the Adamic sin nature. We're born as sinners. So in this final lesson of our series on Noah, we come to the end of his life. Although he lived... Actually, an additional 350 years after the flood. Remember how old was he at the time of the flood? 600. Now we're told that he lived another 350 years. Yet the only events regarding his life in those additional three and a half centuries are what we find recorded in these verses, 18 to 29 of chapter 9. And they are verses which deal primarily with the drunkenness of Noah and then the subsequent disrespect of one son and the kind decency of his other two sons, and then a declaration from Noah himself. And finally, in the last two verses, we learn of the death of Noah. So the four subdivisions for our lesson entitled the Fall, Noah's Fallen Prophecy are, we'll look at the descendants of Noah, the drunkenness of Noah, the declaration of Noah, and the death of of Noah. So let's look first of all at the descendants of Noah, verses 18 and 19, if you'll read with me. Starting in verse 18, the scripture says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. In these verses here, we are once again told the names of Noah's three sons. And they are presented not in their birth order. Their birth order would be Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Japheth, the oldest, then 
Shem, and then last of all, Ham. Ham was the youngest. But we find here that they are given in a different order. They're given as uh, Shem. What is it now? I just Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is actually the fourth of five times that we find this order. Actually, whenever we find Noah's sons listed together, they're always given in this order. Shem first, then Ham, and then Japheth. So that's interesting. And one of your homework questions is, why do you think that is? Why are they not given in the birth order? Why are they instead given in this order? So these are the three sons who went with Noah into the ark, and after the flood, it says they went forth of the ark. They alone, with their mother and with their respective wives, of all the pre-flood world, all the antediluvian world, they alone were the ones who believed Noah's words about coming judgment, and therefore they alone took refuge in the ark, which they probably helped Noah to build. Now it's interesting that the Holy Scripture, or the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to include an additional detail about Ham. You notice we're told in verse 18 that he was the father of Canaan. Although Ham, we know if when we get over to chapter 10, verse 6, we know that Ham had four sons and that Canaan was the youngest. It's interesting that here, just Canaan, the youngest, is specifically mentioned by Moses. And this is probably because it was from Canaan that the Canaanites descended. And they, you know, if you remember, were the very evil, wicked people who populated the land of Israel, which was promised to Abraham and, of course, to the Jewish people. At the time, in fact, that Moses was leading them to that promised land. And at the time, he was also probably writing this book. So he was giving... The initial readers of, of his book, Genesis, he was giving them an additional detail telling them that Ham was the father of Canaan and it was from Canaan that their enemies, the Canaanites, came. And we are very clearly told then that it was from the three sons of Noah and, of course, their wives that the whole earth was overspread. That's what we see at the end of verse 19. So it was from Noah's sons that all the races and all the peoples of the entire earth can be traced. And I wonder, you may not figure this out today, but if you do not know from which particular son of Noah you came, perhaps as we finish up this lesson you can maybe figure that out, or as we look at chapter 10, Lord willing, next week, as we look at the table of nations, perhaps you'll be able to figure out from which one of his sons you came. We all came from Noah, but then we start getting divided up. And some of us came from Shem, maybe. I'm not really sure if anybody here did. Some of us have come from Ham, and some of us, most of us, have probably come from Japheth. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about the descendants of Noah. Let's look next at the drunkenness of Noah. And as we look at this, we're going to discuss, first of all, the disgrace of Noah himself, then the disrespect of Ham and the decency of the other two sons, Shem and Japheth. But we'll begin by looking at the disgrace of Noah, and for this, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Ancient traditions report that Noah... And his family lived at least for a good many years after the flood that they lived on the lower slopes of the northern side of greater Mount Ararat. Apparently, even though Noah lived for another 350 years after the flood, apparently he had no other sons other than the three that are mentioned, and they lived near him. And we know that they lived near him because of what we're told in verses 23 to 27. They were right there, you know, when he was drunk, and then he spoke a prophecy to them. So we know that they lived close by. And by the fact that Canaan, who was the youngest of Ham's four sons, by the fact that he is mentioned three times in these verses, we know that this fall, this account of Noah's drunkenness, had to have occurred you know, some time after the flood, not immediately after the flood, like it sounds when we just read it. 
But by now, Noah's had, you know, at least four grandchildren by his youngest son. So maybe that's why I was saying maybe Noah at this time is about 750 years old. I'm just guessing he could have been 700, but somewhere between 700 and 800 years old at the time of this account. Now, in verse 20, Noah is said to have begun to be an husbandman. And the word literally means a man of the ground. So just like his father, Lamech. Remember, Lamech was the good Lamech, Noah's father, who named Noah, Noah, which means rest. Well, Lamech also was a man of the ground. In other words, he was a man who tilled the ground. And this is what Noah now became. Before he had been a carpenter building an ark. Now he becomes a farmer. And it says that in particular, he planted a vineyard. And then, with with absolutely no excuse whatsoever, the scripture simply tells us of the sin of Noah by saying he drank of the wine and was drunken, And he was uncovered within his tent. And by the way, the specific Hebrew that is used there makes it very clear that he uncovered himself. Okay, nobody came in and uncovered him. He uncovered, you know, wine or alcohol can can give you a false sense of warmth. So he got two, it also takes away your uh, inhibitions. So he just uncovered himself and and went to sleep, you know, in in a drunken stupor. But he did uncover himself. Although the world had been swept clean of all the ungodly antediluvian human beings, yet we find even the few survivors, the righteous survivors, still possess their Adamic sin natures. Furthermore, Satan was still ruling the world, right? And he could now devote all of his time and energies on and attempted destruction of one family. And in particular, I'm sure he would like to attack the head of that family, the head of the whole new human race, Noah. So it's very sad to learn that Noah, and yet it's very human to learn that Noah, who for centuries had stood so strong against so many of the attacks of Satan and his human and demonic dupes, that now he let down his guard in his later years by giving in to the lusts of his flesh. But this truth really proves, you know, all scripture is given for our benefit, isn't it? So that we can learn from the mistakes of others. They're in samples to us and warnings to us. So this truth about the fall of Noah proves to be a strong Warning to uh, those of us who are older in the faith. I don't mean older necessarily by because of our age, but you know those of us who have perhaps been Christians for longer. We need to be uh, aware of the dangers of falling in our lat- latter years. And there are numerous examples from the Bible of men and women who proved to be very strong in uh, their younger years, you know, very strong in their faith, very strong as they stood against the attacks of the evil one, but who in their later years let down their guard and failed through some sin or another. For example, we have Moses himself who wrote this account. Uh, He disobeyed God by striking a rock twice, remember? And therefore he was forbidden to um, enter into the promised land. And then there was King Saul. Saul was very strong when he was young, strong in the Lord even. And yet he fell miserably in his later years, even at the end going to a witch, you know, a spirit medium for advice. And then there is David, King David, who was another very, very strong man for the Lord in his younger years. But somewhere in his 50s, In his midlife crisis, (laughs) he sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband, Uriah, murdered. And his son, Solomon, was the wisest man on earth when he was younger. And yet, what happened in his later years? He left the will of the Lord. So we, we, every single one of us, whether you're young in the faith or old in the faith, we all need to constantly be on our guard our whole lives. I remember little Dr. Layman Strauss. We knew him personally, and actually he came here and taught us in the ladies' Bible study. 
but he, when he was up there in his 80s, every time my husband and I would see him, you remember this, Dottie? He would always ask us to pray that he would end his course faithful. And now I see the importance of that because it, it is easy, you know, in your later years to get slack. Not that I'm in my later years, I hope. But, but I could see how that's a real problem by looking at the examples of people in the scripture. So our whole lives long, we need to remember to be sober, to be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Past successes are absolutely no promise of power for future victories. Did you get that? Past successes are no promise of power for future victories. Not one of God's children, whether we're young or old, is past the point of temptation. You know, our spirits might be willing, but man, that flesh is so weak. It is weak. And none of us are beyond our desperate need for God's sustaining grace every moment of every hour. Well, some have attempted to excuse the drunkenness of Noah by saying that he was naive, and I think at one point in time I even thought this, that he was naive about the fermentation process of of grape juice. However, the scripture doesn't give us this excuse. It doesn't provide us with any excuse. And we know that with the global corruption of the pre-flood society, we can be sure, almost, that the process of wine fermentation was known prior to the flood. I'm sure that all those wicked people understood. I mean, we can't blame it on a water vapor canopy because grape juice will still ferment even with the sunlight filtered through the water vapor canopy. And I'm sure that they got a hang on that and that they were, many of them, just always drunk with alcohol. And that's probably contributed to the degeneracy of the antediluvian world. So we can't say that he was naive about what he was doing. The fermentation process, of course, just like the process of leaven, is a decay process, which symbolically in the scripture pictures corruption. You know, leaven, I'm speaking of yeast. It's a breakdown. And uh, the effect of drinking alcoholic products, likewise, produces a decay process within an individual because he or she begins to break down either or both physically and uh, morally, spiritually. The more which is drunk, the worse the breaking down becomes. Now, most likely, Noah did not mean to, you know, to become drunk. I'm sure when he began to drink some of that fermented grape juice. He had no intention of drinking to the point of excess. But the fact of the matter remains that he did, didn't he? I mean, no excuses provided. He just simply got drunk. There's an old Japanese proverb, which I like. It says, because it's so true, that's why I like it. It says, first a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. Is so true. So we're told that Noah became drunk. And in his drunken state, of course, he threw off his clothes and then he just fell down and went to sleep. Alcohol is a narcotic. It's not a stimulant. So when the brain is affected by alcohol, the individual loses his self-control. Noah, of course, We can say to his benefit, we have to look for some good in this, Noah did do all of this in the privacy of his own tent. He, you know, he wasn't out in public doing it. Nonetheless, his sin, like his own nakedness, was uncovered. It was uncovered for the whole world to know because it was recorded in the written eternal word of God. So we even know about it. Even though he thought that he was doing this privately within his own tent, here we are today Many, many millennium later, four, four million, I mean, 4,000 years later, and we're, we're learning about it, right? We know what he did. So the scripture says, be sure your sin shall find you out. Numbers 32, 23, and that is so true. Be sure your sin will find you out, even if you think that you're getting away with it. 
The word of God uncovers the truth, and one day in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll have all the truth revealed too, won't we? That'll be a frightening thing. I mean, nothing is past God's sight. God's word uncovers the truth even of men, great men, such as uh, Abraham, who lied twice, remember, about his wife, Sarah. And then his son did likewise. Isaac also lied. And Moses, I've already mentioned how he sinned. And Joshua sinned. And, of course, we know Peter denied the Lord three times. So even the great men of faith make mistake, made mistakes. And they are the, their mistakes are recorded for us in God's word so that we will be warned by what happened with them. We find that even the godliest of men are not immune from the temptations of this world. And this is particularly true after they have experienced some kind of a spiritual victory or some kind of a great accomplishment for God. That's usually when they'll fall. After having been on the mountaintop, watch out for those valleys because Satan knows and that's when he'll really increase his um, attack on the Christian. So God wants us to get it through our heads here that he sees everything. He sees it all. Nothing, absolutely nothing escapes his notice. Even those sins which we think that we're getting away with committed in the privacy of our quote-unquote own tents. He sees it all. We can never escape his eyes and we can never escape the consequences of our sin, even our private sin. There's always, always going to be a price to pay sooner or later. And there was a price for Noah to pay. But before we get to that, I did want to point out that there is a striking comparison between the fall of Adam back there in the Garden of Eden and the fall of Noah. Both of these men, Adam and Noah, were heads of the human race. Both of them were blessed by God. And both of them were given the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Both of them sinned by partaking of fruit. Adam sinned, you see, by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Noah sinned by partaking of the fermented forbidden fruit of the vine. And the consequence of each man's sin was the exposure of their nakedness. And the covering of that nakedness by someone else, some, someone not themselves. Also, in both cases, Noah and Adam, important prophecies immediately followed their falls. And we'll see the prophecy of um, Noah in the next few verses, or verses um, 25 to 27. So immediately afterwards, prophecies were given. The prophecy which was given to Adam by God immediately after he ate forbidden fruit included a condensed account of the history of redemption through the coming Savior. Remember that Genesis 3.15 prophecy. Well, the prophecy that was given by God to Noah, um, and it was given immediately after he drank forbidden fruit, it contained in condensed version the outline of the history of all the future races of mankind. And in both prophecies, we find that there was a curse and a blessing given. And both of the blessings had to do with the coming Redeemer, the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And there are a lot more comparisons as well. That's just some of them. So the fall of Noah tells us about, for one thing, the danger of alcohol. Sin, uh, Noah's sin did indeed affect others, even though, as we said, he thought that it was a private matter committed in the secrecy of his own tent. Yet his sin resulted in the sin of one of his sons and a curse even on some of his very own descendants. So Noah's fall teaches us that no believer is ever immune from the temptations of sin. All of us are, as we said, in constant need of dependency on the Lord's grace and strength to keep us from falling prey to our three deadly enemies, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need to be kept by his grace from the world, our own flesh, and the devil. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. None of us are beyond falling. <clears throat> if Noah, who, was, who had been so strong and had, had, had stood so firm against wickedness, you know, the, not just some wickedness, but the wickedness of the entire world, he had stood so strong against that for 600 years. If he could give in to the lust of his flesh, then there's no room for any of us in this room to think that we could do any better. And that's why the Apostle Paul even had to say that he kept his body under subjection, lest that by any means when he had preached to others, he himself would become a castaway. Well, we turn next to the consequences of Noah's sin, and they're first found in the reactions of his three sons. First of all, we'll look at the disgrace, or excuse me, the disrespect of Ham, and then the decency of Shem and and Japheth. So let's begin by looking at the disgrace. I keep saying that. The disrespect or the dishonor of Ham. And that's in verse 22. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. If you just read it, it doesn't even sound like he sinned, does it? But we have to look at what the words actually say, the original meaning. Ham who is again, just as back in verse 18, called the father of Canaan, was the youngest of Noah's four sons, and he somehow or another chanced to come into his father's tent while his father lay there sleeping naked. Now, we know he wasn't invited into the tent because Noah was asleep, right? So obviously Ham was not invited to come into the tent, and perhaps he should not have entered. However, to give him the benefit of the doubt here, he may have called out to his father from outside the tent and not receiving an answer, he may have wondered if, you know, something was the the matter, something was wrong. So we can't really judge him with regard to his reason for why he entered into Noah's tent uninvited. You know, perhaps he was concerned about his father and what was wrong. However, as to the next thing that Ham did, we can make a judgment about him. Uh, And we can do this with assurance because Ham displayed very clear dishonor and disrespect toward his father in his reaction to what he saw inside that tent. You know, Ham could have just entered into the tent. He could have assessed the situation, covered up his father's nakedness, and then gone out and said nothing to anybody about it. That would have been the respectful thing to have done as a righteous son toward his father. Perhaps then later on, in private, he could have talked to his father about the situation and have done so in an attitude of love and humility to help his father see the error of what he had done and the danger of what he had done. But Ham's reaction was not like this. It was quite different from this. He greatly dishonored his father. We find that this is not only true in the actions of Ham by the fact that, you know, he did not cover his father. And he also immediately went to tell his brothers about the situation. So we not only find out that he was dishonorable by his actions, but it's revealed to us by way of the Hebrew meaning of the word saw, where it says in verse 22 that he saw the nakedness of his father. We don't see this in the English, but the Hebrew word means that he intently gazed upon his father with obvious satisfaction. In other words, he saw his father's situation and he deliberately stood there looking at him. The implication is that he was receiving satisfaction from what he saw. Apparently, beholding the evidence of, of his father's human weakness caused Ham to have some kind of pleasure, some sense of pleasurable satisfaction. In effect, he was rejoicing at the sight of seeing his father in such a state 
of drunkenness and shame and dishonor. He did nothing at all to cover him. Perhaps, this tells us, perhaps Ham, the youngest son, had been suppressing some vent-up feelings of anger over many years toward his father for having imposed perhaps such high standards of behavior and uh, ethics from him his entire life. Perhaps seeing his father's humility and his, his human frailty in having sinned, perhaps that gave Ham himself a feeling of great release. You know, as a human being with, with his own sinful nature, Ham would have been, of course, also suppressing many of his own fleshly desires and ambitions. And seeing his very righteous father give in to sin one of the lusts of his flesh, may have made Ham feel better about himself. This is sometimes the danger that we as Christians fall into. When we see somebody else sin, sometimes we have an inner joy about it because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And we rejoice in our own state. You know, well, if they can sin, you know, then I don't feel so bad about my own sin. Or maybe we look down our nose and say, well, I never would have done that sin. But regardless of whatever his thoughts were, Ham, Ham's response strongly indicates to us that there was a carnality in his nature, which had probably been being held in check by you know, Noah's strong patriarchal authority. Not only did uh, Ham dishonor his father by intently gazing upon him in his shameful state and by not throwing some kind of cover over him, and by taking satisfaction in his father's fall, but also Ham dishonored his father by telling his brothers about their father's drunkenness and nakedness. In verse 22, the word for told in the Hebrew means that he told them with great delight. So we're not just making this up. He was happy about this situation. He received joy and satisfaction in telling Shem and Japheth about their father's condition. He seemed to have thought that they would share in his satisfaction at learning of the sinful uh, weakness of their father. So ultimately, what we can say is that Ham's sin was really a sin against God. If his own heart had been right with God, he would not have been able to... Um, demonstrate such dishonor toward his own father, nor toward God's servant. Remember, not only was Noah his father, but Noah was God's servant. Although Noah had done wrong, yet he still was a very true preacher of righteousness. And he had been a man who had been, you know, particularly, especially chosen by God and, and mightily used by God to preserve the human race and to preserve the messianic seed. So he was still God's servant. And we know this, in fact, because in just a few minutes, we're going to see that God still used him. God gave a tremendous prophecy to us through Noah. So Noah was God's servant. And Noah was still Ham's father. And Noah was still also Ham's elder. And for all of those reasons, Ham should have shown respect you know, when any believer displays dishonor or scorn toward any individual at all, they are sinning. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, as you see up here, he therefore that despiseth, who does he despise? Despiseth not man. When you despise someone else, you're not really despising that person. You're despising God. That's what the scripture says. Because God is the one who created that person, right? Especially a believer, God also redeemed that person. But it's never wrong to dishonor and disrespect another individual. So Ham, never wrong. It's never right. Thank you. Thank you. I would hate myself when I heard that on the tape. <laughs> it's never right. So Ham, with obvious delight, told Shem and Japheth of the situation with their father. However, his brother's reaction was probably quite a shock to him. 
because it was much different from what he must have anticipated. Their reaction did not display a heart attitude of disrespect at all, but it displayed rather that of honor and of love and of decency. So let's look at the decency of Shem and Japheth in verse 23. It says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. So rather than rushing right into the tent to gaze, you know, intently, as Ham had done, upon the unhappy scene of their father's drunken uh, naked condition and enjoying with Ham the display of Noah's human weakness, rather Shem and Japheth demonstrated great, I mean immense, respect toward their father, their sleeping father. What they did is they took up some kind of a garment. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a blanket. And um, they stood together with the garment between them on their shoulders. You know, they held it on their shoulders. And then they walked into the tent backwards so that they would not look upon their father's shame. And doing that, they covered. Then they, you know, dropped it and covered their father. So it tells us very clearly they saw not their father's nakedness. Their great love for their father was displayed by the way in which they covered him. And so it was just like the book of Proverbs tells us. These were proverbial sons because in Proverbs we not only read that love covereth all sins, but we read that he that covereth a transgression seeketh love, and we read that a prudent man covereth shame. Genuine, Christ-like love does not take delight in the sins of other people or go about spreading the news of someone else's sin, which is called what? Gossip. Genuine, Christ-like love does not do that. Genuine love attempts to restore the one who has sinned and to do so, of course, in an attitude of great humility. You know, wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We all have to remember we're all sinners in this thing together. So it could have been us that fell. It says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, in other words, if someone has fallen in sin, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. But how? In a spirit of meekness. In other words, in great humility, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So we see Shem and Japheth did the right thing. They were very, very good in the way they handled this particular situation. They were righteous. So, okay, as we move on, we'll look now. We've covered the descendants of Noah, the drunkenness of Noah. We'll look now at the declaration of Noah. And under this section, we'll look at his enlightenment. Then we'll look at the enslavement of Canaan, the enrichment of Shem, and the enlargement of Japheth. We'll begin with the enlightenment of Noah in verse 24, where it says, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. This is his enlightenment. When he finally woke from his drunken stupor, Noah would have realized by the way in which he was covered that someone else had been a witness to his sin. Now, by the way, in all of this, I I don't know where his wife was, Mrs. Noah. Maybe you've been wondering about that yourself. I have no idea, so I can't even begin to speculate where Mrs. Noah was. Maybe Mrs. Noah was not even around anymore. I just simply don't know where she was. But he knew by, by his condition that someone else had covered him. So he obviously made inquiries, probably starting with his oldest son, Japheth, and uh, found out through these inquiries what his younger son had done unto him. So we, we can just imagine that the disrespect of his youngest son must have hurt Noah very deeply. I mean, not only was he probably greatly shamed at what he had done, but now he had this additional hurt because of what his youngest son had done. 
So there are consequences to sin, even sin done in privacy. Some people have erroneously thought and even taught that Noah, by his fall into drunkenness, lost his salvation. However, not only does that disagree with the doctrinal teaching throughout the scripture regarding the eternal security of the believer, but it also disagrees with what occurred next. Even though he had lapsed into sin, Noah was still God's child. He was still God's servant. And that's demonstrated by the fact that God used Noah to speak an important prophecy, which is found in verses 25 to 27. You see, Noah had believed in God's promise regarding the coming seed of the woman, the Redeemer. Therefore, although he had been temporarily uncovered physically due to his sin, yet he was still eternally covered spiritually by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom he had placed his faith. And this is the grace and the mercy of our great Savior. And it's a very good thing that he is a God of grace and mercy, or else not one of us would ever, ever see heaven. Even after our salvation, we all continue to sin. Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus died for all of our sins, didn't he? He died when he died on that cross 2,000 years ago. He died for our, our, all of our sins because we weren't even born yet. So he's died for our our past sins, the sins we've already um, committed. He's died for our present sins, and he died for our future sins, because all of our sins were yet future when he died for them. And this is, of course, why Jonah, even though Jonah rebelled against God's will, was still, after he repented, used by God as his prophet to save the people of Nineveh. And this is why Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Peter and all the other disciples and men and women of faith throughout the scripture could still be used by God even after they sinned following their salvation. Our God is the God of mercy. He is the God of grace. And thank the Lord, he is also the God of the second chance. Not only the second chance, but the third, the fourth, fifth, etc., He is the God also who keeps his promises. And when he promises eternal life to the individual who comes to faith in his son, he keeps that promise. When he promised us eternal life at the moment of our salvation, we received eternal life, not temporary life, depending on if we could maintain our own salvation. So after surely repenting of his sin, I'm sure, you know, he was a righteous man, and when he woke up, he repented of his sin. Then Noah, who had been drunk with wine, was next filled with the Spirit of the living God, so as to speak a prophecy which has been recorded in the eternal word of God. And this prophecy, as I stated earlier, is actually a general outline of the history of mankind through Noah's sons. Ham, here in this prophecy, is represented by his youngest son, Canaan. As we look at this prophecy, we're going to consider Noah's inspired words regarding, first of all, the enslavement of Canaan's descendants. And Canaan is the youngest of Ham's sons. Then we will look at the enrichment of Shem's descendants and the enlargement of Japheth's descendants. So we'll begin by looking at the enslavement of Canaan. And for this, let's look at verse 25, where it says, And he, now this is Noah speaking, And he, Noah, said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. The prophecy of God given through Noah was pronounced first toward Ham, although, as we said, it was given to the person of his youngest son, Canaan. Actually, this part of the prophecy contains a curse, because Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. Now, as you can imagine, This verse has presented a great deal of difficulty for Bible scholars and Bible students alike because it is very puzzling to understand why Canaan should have been cursed instead of his father Ham, who was the one who had dishonored his father. Well, some think that it's because perhaps Canaan was with his father when he entered into Noah's tent. Or that actually it was Canaan who sinned against his his grandfather, Noah. Um, And so there's all kinds of speculations made with regard to that. However, 
we can't say that because the scripture itself doesn't say that. And therefore it can't be anything more than mere speculation. So we're right back to where we started. Why would Canaan be the one mentioned in the prophecy and not Ham? There may be several reasons for this. First of all, it may be that having already been blessed by God over in Genesis 9-1, where it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, perhaps because he was already blessed by God, it was not possible for God to now curse Ham. Ham had been blessed by God, so perhaps God could not now curse him. Of course, being God, he could do anything that he wants, but I do not believe that I ever find in the scripture where God curses a believer. And Ham, even though he had wrongly delighted in his father's sin, was yet a believer. Or, you know, he would have perished with all the ungodly in the flood. So we know that he was a true believer. That's why he entered into the ark and and God himself shut the door. Those who entered in the ark were secure in Christ, in the ark. On the other hand, Canaan, Ham's youngest son, who turns out to be the ancestor of the wicked Canaanites, he may not have been a believer at all. Uh, Most likely he was not, or God would not have cursed him. And he would not have become the ancestor of such wicked people. Furthermore, whether we like it or not, it does remain a biblical principle that the sins of the fathers are visited on the children even to the third and the fourth generations. And we learn this, actually, in the passage regarding the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Also, even though the curse itself was pronounced on Canaan, it would have been an infliction of punishment on Ham, his father, because Ham would have been reaping what he had sown. You know, Ham had sinned himself as the youngest son of his father and would therefore be punished in his own youngest son. However, whatever the reasoning may have been for why Canaan was the one cursed in this passage and not Ham, yet we have to remember that the reasoning was God's and therefore it's really not for us to question Ham himself, although not directly cursed, yet did not receive a blessing from his father. He was simply passed over. There's no mention of him made at all. And that would have hurt probably the most. He was just passed right over by his father. His name was not even mentioned in this important prophecy. But instead his youngest son, in his well not in his place, but his youngest son was mentioned three times. And in all of those three occurrences, Noah stated that Canaan, uh, and of course this would concern his descendants, that they would become the lowest of servants. They're called, or he says that they would be a servant of servants. And you can't get much lower than that, a servant of servants. Did you know that the very name Canaan itself means submissive one? It originates from the Hebrew word, which means to stoop or to submit or to subjugate. So his very name speaks of him being a servant of servants. In fulfillment of this prophecy, we find that the descendants of Canaan, which are listed over in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 to 19, which we'll look at in our next study, those descendants are the very people whom the Israelites conquered and whose land they occupied. The moral decay of the Canaanite peoples, particularly in their religious practices, was absolutely abominable. If you look at verse 18 of of, uh, Leviticus, you'll find that they engaged in such atrocious sins as incest and adultery. They sacrificed their own children to false gods. They blasphemed the true God. They engaged in homosexuality and even bestiality. They were awful people. The two wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, were Canaanite cities. Now we may wonder why the other three sons of Ham are not mentioned. Why Canaan alone was the one to be cursed. And we don't really know the answer again. But we do know uh, by the fact that neither Ham or any of his sons are included in the blessings pronounced on Shem or Japheth, 
that by implication they are somewhat included in the curse of Canaan. Because Noah's prophecy of verses 25 to 27 is a prophecy of the general future of the entire human race through the three branches which would spread out and fill the whole earth, then if Ham's other three sons were not included in the prophecy which was made to Canaan, this would mean that three-fourths of Ham's descendants would have been omitted. And that would not make sense in that both the prophecy and the table of nations, which is given in Genesis chapter 10, that they focus on the entire human race. So by conclusion, we can say that the other three sons of Ham must be included in the prophecy given to Canaan, or else the prophecy would not be complete. Some have actually suggested that Canaan was mentioned in order to stress that the curse of the prophecy extended to all of Ham's sons down to his youngest, to Canaan. But be it as it may, we don't know that for sure. We do know that there was a direct curse put on the descendants of Canaan. It is very important to clarify the misconception that the descendants of Ham were members of the black race, the Negroes. I want to make it clear that they were not. They were actually Caucasian. And therefore, there is no basis at all for those who have attempted to justify the slavery of the blacks on the curse of Canaan. The original Canaanites were, were Caucasian. They were white. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce has written this. He says, quote, We are going to see in the next chapter, chapter 10, that this curse was pronounced on the ancient peoples of the Near East, most of whom were later conquered by the Jews under Joshua. But notice this. They were not the Negro races. In an earlier generation, prejudiced minds minds used this text to justify their enslaving of Africa's black populations. But this is without any biblical basis and is a good proof, rather, of the expositor's sin. Not until the middle of the 19th century, when the slave trade was at its height, did anyone ever imagine that Ham was the father of the black races or that there was a curse on them. End of quote. That's found in his book on Genesis. Furthermore, in spite of much evil, some of the descendants of Ham, such as the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Carthaginians, and the early Babylonians, built very large and advanced civilizations. Included in the descendants of Ham are the modern African tribes and also the Mongol tribes, including the Chinese and the Japanese. The American Indians and the South Sea Islanders also may have come from Ham. Many of the Canaanites were exterminated. Many others were subjected to the lowest form of slavery by the Israelites, who were the descendants of Shem. And the remainder of the Canaanites were reduced under King Solomon to the same condition, the lowest form of slavery. You can look that up in 1 Kings 9, verses 20 and 21. The Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, and the Egyptians were subjected by the Medo-Persians, by the Macedonians, the Greeks, and by the Romans, who were all descendants of Japheth. And the remainder of the Hamitic tribes suffered much the same fate. However, it may also be that in addition to the term servant of servants being literally fulfilled in that they were subjected by um, both the Shamites and the Japhethites, that term might also involve the idea of service. There's a very true sense in which the descendants of Ham have served the world through the ideas and the implements that they have been responsible for having invented and developed. Dr. Henry Morris gives a list of some of the many ways in which the descendants of Ham have been the great servants of mankind. He says that they were the original explorers and settlers of practically all the parts of the world following the dispersion of Babel. And they were the first cultivators of most of the basic food staples of the world, such as potatoes and corn, beans, cereals, and others, as well as the first ones to domesticate most animals. They developed most of the basic types of structural forms and building tools and materials. They were first to develop most of the 
usual fabrics for clothing and the various sewing and weaving devices. They also discovered and invented a wide variety of medicines and surgical practices and instruments. They invented most of the concepts of basic practical mathematics, as well as surveying and uh, navigation. The machinery of commerce and trade and money, banks, postal systems, and so forth was developed by them. They developed paper, ink, block printing, movable type, and other accoutrements of writing and communication. Yet, as Dr. Morris goes on to state, the Hamites were, sooner or later, taken over in both their territories and their inventions by either the descendants of Shem or the descendants of the uh, of Japheth. But let us understand that by all means, please, the curse on the Canaanites did not exclude individual salvation. Always the individual, regardless of what line he came from, can have knowledge of the one and true living God and be saved. And we have several examples of Canaanites in the scripture, descendants of Canaan, getting saved. Rahab was one such example. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, who gave materials for the temple, was another example. Okay, let's look now at the enrichment of Shem. And for this, let's look at verse 26. Noah goes on and it says that he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. In this verse, Noah was led by the Holy Spirit to turn to Shem. And his words to Shem consist of two parts. First of all, he pronounced a blessing. And secondly, he made a further prediction regarding Canaan being a servant to Shem. In other words, Shem was to rule over Canaan and his descendants. Specifically, the Jews who were the descendants of Shem did indeed conquer and enslave the Canaanites. Now, with regard to Noah's blessing, we should note that in reality, he did not actually pronounce a blessing on Shem, but rather he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. So he was properly giving the glory to the Lord for what he, the Lord, would do through the descendants of Shem. So whatever good was accomplished through Shem and his seed would only be because of God. Therefore, in reality, the blessing of Shem was all tied up in God himself. Now, there are really two implications of Noah's words to Shem. First of all, he was predicting that the knowledge of the Lord God was to come through Shem and through Shem's descendants. And as we read further in Genesis, of course, we find that Abraham was a descendant of Shem. And it was through Abraham that the nation of Israel was born. So, consequently... The world did uh, come to know the Lord God, the one and true living God, through Shem and his descendants. Because it was through Israel that we have the the written word, the scripture, which tells us about the one and true living God. Well, the second implication of Noah's prophetic words to Shem was that it would be through his second born son, Shem, that the promised seed of the woman would come. In other words, the messianic line would continue not through Japheth, the firstborn son of Noah, or through Ham, the youngest son, the third son, but through Shem, the secondborn son. And again, I believe this is demonstrating to us the importance of the second birth. Now, of course, it is through the Jews, again, that not only do we have the written word, the uh, Old and New Testament, the Bible, but we also have the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was, is the promised seed, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Shem in Hebrew actually means name, and it's indeed through the people of Israel that the name of the Lord has been preserved. Other descendants of Shem, besides the Jews, are the Arabs, the Syrians, the Armenians, and the Assyrians. Well, let's turn now and look at the enlargement of Japheth. And for this, we will look at verse 27. Noah's still speaking. It says, he says, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. To his oldest son, Noah spoke last. 
he predicted to Japheth that God would enlarge him and that he would dwell in the tents of Shem and just as this was true with Shem that Canaan would be his servant as well. Now the Hebrew word for enlarge is petha and actually it's a play on words because the name Japheth is very similar to it. So Japheth essentially means enlarge or it's very close to that word. Although the descendants of Ham initially built very large civilizations in the east, and although the descendants of Shem settled in the land of Canaan and its surrounding Middle Eastern territory, we find in history that the descendants of Japheth went much, much further, and they reached out eventually both to Asia Minor and Europe, and Japheth became the father of the uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the Medo-Persians. He was, uh, those were all the... Um, huge empires of the ancient world and he was the father of the all the Indo-European races. Indo of course means that it has to do with India and the countries that are found in that general direction when moving eastward from the Middle East. So Japheth becomes the father of the Indo-European races. Included in the Japheth family are also the Russians. So God has certainly fulfilled the prophecy of Noah to Japheth because his descendants have included much of Asia and much of the whole of Europe. And we know, of course, that both South and North Americans, most of them, have come from Europe and also Canadians as well. So Japheth indeed was enlarged. His people spread over a great part of the world, much greater than the the Shemites or the Hamites. Not only did God through Noah promise to enlarge Japheth, but he also said that he would dwell in the tents of Shem. And this part of the prophecy is to be taken in the spiritual sense. Japheth's descendants, by and large, would enter into the spiritual blessings of God by their association, their fellowship, with the Semitic people, the descendants of Shem. They would learn or they would receive spiritual blessings by learning about the God and Messiah of Israel. And the vast majority, of course, of those who belong to the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ are a fulfillment of this very prophecy which was made many thousands of years ago by Noah to his eldest son, Japheth. Well, let's look now at verses 28 to 29 as we wrap up this lesson and look at the death of Noah. It says in verse 28, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In these last two verses of chapter 9, we read of the death of the man who had stood firm against the entire world of satanically ruled mankind as a single testimony for Jehovah God. We read of the death of the man who had obeyed God by building a tremendous ark, a boat, a ship, nowhere even remotely near a large body of water. And a man who had believed God regarding a coming global flood when he had never even seen rain before. We read about the death of the man who preached righteousness and and coming judgment for 120 years even though he was disbelieved and mocked and scorned and persecuted and ridiculed and no one but his own wife and three sons and their wives listened to him. We read here of the death of the man who the word of God declares as righteous and perfect in his generations and the man who is said to have walked with God. This man, named Noah, rest, finally did receive his rest. He finally died at the age of 950 years. So he lived another 350 years after the flood, which of course occurred when he was in his 600th year. So, as verse 29 tells us, he did live for a total of 950 years. That was almost, can you imagine, almost one millennium, 1,000 years. He was, in fact, the third longest living member of the human race. Only two people lived longer than Noah did. And that was Methuselah, who lived 969 years, and Jared, 
who lived 962 years. So he preceded, he lived longer than Noah by 12 years. It's very likely that Noah even lived to see the dispersion which uh, occurred at the Tower of Babel. Yet the fact for us to notice is that if this righteous, godly man died, if Noah died, then surely we all have to die. So he stands, along with Adam, as a picture of the truth that the wages of sin is death. And that death has a firm claim on the entire human race, because all of us have sinned. And this, then, becomes the very reason why we so very desperately need the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. You see, it's the Lord Jesus Christ alone of all men who conquered sin, who lived a sinless life for 33 years and then conquered sin and won the victory over death and can therefore give those who place their faith in him the promise of eternal life and the promise also of victory over death and over the grave. So thank God for his son.